I think it's fair to say there that that strand of conservatism, the populist one, has a difficult time conceptually with the monarchical tradition. Why do I say that? Because within that, that populist idea is the notion that the people, however defined, should govern. And that's not compatible with crown sovereignty, I would argue. It's, it, 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 they make for very strange bedfellows. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Philip Lagasse, Associate Professor and Barton Chair of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, one of Canada's foremost experts on the roles of Parliament, the Crown, and executive power in Westminster states. We sat down to discuss the state of the monarchy in Canada following the accession and coronation of King Charles III. Professor, welcome back to Runnymede Radio. Thanks for having me. So, Phil, we're here today to talk about the state of the Canadian monarchy, uh, to talk specifically about the accession and coronation of King Charles III. We're recording this the week after uh, King Charles was coronated. So let's start uh, with the new monarch. And I just want to give you a broad question to start of what does uh, Charles's accession and coronation mean for the state of the Canadian crown? Do you see this as a moment of opportunity or uncertainty for the institution? Uh, let's begin with just the, the first, the, the legal and constitutional aspect of it. So the coronation itself um, did not have any legal significance uh, for Canada. As soon as there was an accession to the throne, Charles became king. So in, in Canada and his other realms. So from that point of view, there there's no real consequence. The real big moment was when he became monarch. Um, as we saw, however, the government of Canada timed uh, a number of different changes to the crown, to the coronation. So we saw, for instance, uh, in the budget bill, a change to the royal styles and titles, mm-hmm. removing uh, Charles's title as uh King of the United Kingdom from the Canadian royal styles and titles. Similarly, the government announced um, that there would be a new royal Canadian royal crown uh, that was uh, replacing the, uh, the the crowns that Charles uh, will be using in, in his other realms uh, and represents a, a unique Canadian design and, and mm. the path that it's taken. And it was also announced that uh, I think just I'll admit that I was somewhat surprised by the, by how decisive they were on this point. But they they announced that the king will replace the queen on the twenty dollar bill, mm-hmm. and that uh, his effigy will will be on coinage. I think that the coinage was more self evident. The twenty dollar yes. bill was was less so. So all this to say, what does it represent as an opportunity? What I find interesting uh, in terms of what happened last week is that this is a government that. Um, took a step to do two things. First, it further Canadianized the crown, mm. which was an ongoing process that we saw really beginning in the 1930s, but really took off during that this era of Canadian nationalism that we saw uh, in the 1960s, various efforts to really emphasize the, the crown as a Canadian institution. That, uh, that fell off a little bit 
over the years. And certainly under the uh, Harper government, the, I would argue the Britishness of the crown was re-emphasized. Mm-hmm. But the Trudeau government really has decided to, to go much further with the Canadianization of the crown in terms of the symbols that surround it. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, right, I think it's also important to note um, that the, in, in making it more Canadian, uh, they're also um, trying to, to create some distance, I would argue, between the crown in the United Kingdom and the crown in Canada. And to some extent, that, that allows for an opportunity to see it as a um, less of a historic and traditional connection and more as one that Canada will craft on its own. So it'll be interesting to see in the coming years what that looks like. Is that unique uh, in Canada? You seem to indicate that that it was sort of emphasizing the uh, Canadianness of the crown over the Britishness of the crown. Have we seen other Commonwealth countries do that, or is Canada sort of the first one to take that step? And do you think other countries are going to follow suit with that? Uh, what's interesting about uh, the efforts to nationalize the crown in different realms is that it it happens at different paces and, mm. and uh, in different ways in different realms. So, for instance, um, during the abdication uh, in 1936, Canada was much more nationalistic in its interpretation of the crown than uh, other realms might have been. Similarly, uh, in 1953, when we altered the Royal Thousand Titles, we added the Queen of Canada to the title and uh, tried to Canadianize it that way. Um, but then we... We took a bit of a step back as compared to Australia, let's say, where they, they have, through their process of greater independence from the United Kingdom, have really gone a bit further than we did, or at least I would say faster than we did. Mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, having the Queen of Australia and uniquely of Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're, I would argue, catching up a little bit. Okay. Um, and what's what's interesting there is, again, you can you, you see different tracks almost running in parallel, where uh, when there were changes to the, to the laws of succession in um, that were announced in, in 2013, we took a, a very, uh, what I would argue is a far uh, more almost colonial attitude, right? That the laws of succession were entirely determined for Canada by the British Parliament, Whereas Australia, New Zealand, and the other realms really did emphasize their own uh, their own national approach. Mm. Now we're re-emphasizing the national Canadianness of the crown. So it it really does tend to, to depend on the moment, and it depends on what the government of the day is trying to do and what problems it's trying to avoid. And that that's a good segue into my next uh, question because you've emphasized in much of your writing the distinction between the institutions of the British crown and the Canadian crown and how they are legally uh, distinct institutions. But I want to ask in light of that, does this mean in your view that the relative health and the state of the monarchy in Canada is something that's more or less out of your hands? So you were talking there about changes to the laws of uh, succession and how, you know, in Canada, we ended up taking what it was almost a little bit more of a colonial approach. So is that generally how uh, the health of the, the state of the monarchy operates in Canada, where we just sort of have to follow along with whatever's happening over in the United Kingdom? Uh, we can do things in a much more independent way. And we tend to in many fa- different areas. So mm-hmm. as I was mentioning, when it came to the abdication in 1936, 1937, 
we took a more nationalistic or autonomous view, I should say. Similarly, um, when we did other changes to uh, the monarchy uh, with uh, in the 1950s, we, we inched a little bit towards a more Canadian approach. We did that with Canadian honors as well. And we took what I would argue is a, a far more nationalistic position starting in the late 60s and 70s, uh, advising the Queen, for instance, to attend summits contrary to the wishes of the United Kingdom and things of that nature. Um, and you'll see this when it comes to the, the Olympics or the, pro, the, the proclamation of the, Con, uh, the Constitution Act 1982, where we, we choose to emphasize the crown and its connection and its Canadianness. Um, and this manifests in many other ways. So you look at a lot of the, the symbolism that we've used or different efforts that we've made to emphasize that this is an institution that we have, uh, that we can craft in, in a way that we want it to be. Um, just take something as simple as portraits of Her Majesty, which emphasized uh, the uniqueness of her Canadianness, right? Uh, in contrast to uh, portraits which would have emphasized uh, her Britishness. Um, however, we can also see situations where, uh, for expediency's sake, we'll emphasize the Britishness of the crime. So the succession uh, was a good example where. We emphasized in, in that context the fact that our Constitution Act uh, 1867 and its preamble says that we are federated under the crown of the United Kingdom and that this means that uh, it is ultimately, uh, we take whoever the United Kingdom takes as their monarch so that there's a principle of symmetry between the, the two crowns. Now, however, we're re-emphasizing the Canadian aspect. Um, and we can we do other things. that that are entirely up to us when it comes to the crown or the monarchy, I should say. It's up to Canadian governments when we have royal tours. Uh, it's it's up to the Canadian government in terms of when they those occur, how long they are, and things of that nature. So it's really the discretion of the government of the day in terms of how much it wants to emphasize that connection. Uh, similarly, a lot of this iconography that we're relying on is, is ultimately a government decision. All that said, it's very difficult to get away from the fact that when it comes to debates about the monarchy or scandals and controversies that surround the monarchy, those are largely in the hands of members of the royal family and they reside elsewhere and they are not um, something that Canadians see, I would argue, as theirs. Uh, the royal family is ultimately a British family. Uh, and this is important to recognize even in, in their own approach to their role. Mm -hmm. um, if you see how they approach international sporting events, for instance, they are there supporting British athletes. And I, and I know right. that sounds trite, but it's just small things like that mm -hmm. where, you know, the reality is as much as we may try and Canadianize certain aspects of the crown, the royal family has a vested interest in emphasizing the Britishness of it. Right. Uh, their, their ultimate survival as a firm, as it were, resides with making sure that uh, the UK uh, supports them. The realms are less important. That's, um, let's transition a little bit then on, on that point into a, a recent piece that you wrote for uh, The Line, which I thought was a, a really really thoughtful piece. And, you know, you approach this piece as a, as a quote, not broken, 
don't fix it constitutional monarchists, which I, I think that's a, a great descriptor. I myself, speaking personally, would probably be a little bit more unabashed in my status as a constitutional monarchist. But you approach this uh, issue and, and you talk about how Canadian republicanism, republicanism rather, uh, in your view, is currently little more than you use the words vague aspiration floated by a relatively small number of pundits and politicians and advocates. So can you just sort of summarize for us coming out of that piece, what do you think that these voices are ultimately missing in the debate over the role of the monarchy in Canada? Um, in a sense, they miss the, the same thing, I would argue, that many monarchists either miss or choose not to dwell on, which is that this is a, a an institution of fairly significant complexity when it comes to its legal and constitutional status. Um, the crown is not simply the monarch. Uh, it is our concept of the state. It's the personification of our state. It's mm -hmm. the executive power. It's a part of parliament. It holds treaties with First Nations. It has uh, a duty of honor towards Indigenous peoples. It is. It has many different facets um, that if you are desiring or looking to become a republic, you need to address most, if not all of them. Uh, it's not to say it's impossible by any means. We have many examples of countries that have done so, but we need to have uh, some idea of, if you're a Republican, that is, of what you would do to address all those different facets. So um, in the Irish context, for instance, it is not difficult uh, in the 20s and 30s to move towards popular sovereignty. There is an Irish population, there's an Irish public, they can be sovereign. Mm -hmm. What do you do in Canada where we've never had popular sovereignty mm -hmm. and if anything one could argue that canada is made up of a state of many nations <laughs> um, and if you are a state of many nations and those nations each expect to have a degree of protection mm -hmm. uh, and they each not all of them see themselves as being part of a single group called canada uh, what does popular sovereignty do in that context what does it look like um, is that the path we want to go down? Or do we want to emphasize some other things, such as subsets of sovereignty? Uh, and we can get into this when we discuss uh, Crown Indigenous relationships. But uh, there, there's an assumption, right, in, I would say, many circles that the state, if we were to replace the Crown, the crown as the concept of the state, then that state would simply exercise full sovereign authority over what we call Canada. But there are differing views of that. Some might argue that the relationship between the Crown and Indigenous peoples is not one of nation to nation within a single state, but rather sovereignty to sovereignty. And what does that mean? So if, if you're going to tackle it as a concept, as our <laughs> concept of the state, you need to get develop a far more greater and deeper understanding as a whole of what it is that you're trying to tackle. It's, it's not sufficient, I would argue, to simply say, well, you just have the governor general replace the monarch and you've solved the problem. Right. And so on that point, do you think it's fair to say that those who would want to, um, to abolish uh, the monarchy in Canada, turn, turn Canada into a republic, is, is it fair to say that they are... Um, 
underselling just how radical a change that would be given the importance and the role of the crown within our our concept of the state like this based on what you're saying this seems like it wouldn't be just a simple uh change of uh just having different people fill different roles it would really upend canadian public life as we know it well there's different avenues right and this is what i what i mean by the Republicans needing to to present us with an actual set of options or well thought out options because you can go Republic light, mm-hmm. right? Which is again akin a little bit to uh, what happened in Ireland leading up to 1937. Uh, so that period between 1922 and 1937, where the Crown was technically still there, but basically was being pushed to the margins, and this is not dissimilar to what uh, was originally floated by the government of Pierre Trudeau in the late 70s leading up to patriation, whereby the monarch, the crown would still be there, the sovereign would still be there, but it would almost be, you know, deeply on the margins of the Canadian constitution and the governor general would perform most of the personification functions. So one thing you could do technically is simply say, okay, we realize that Getting rid of the crown as a concept is really difficult and would require a lot of legwork. So all we're going to do is we're going to exercise the full panoply of powers found in the later's patent in 1947 and have the governor general exercise all of the sovereign's powers, including the power to name governor general, governor general themselves. Right. So you, you, you could simply do this this idea of you're you're not getting rid of the crown as a concept but you're effectively getting rid of the royals right so that's one option you're mm-hmm. basically pushing them to the margins and you never involve them in canadian affairs ever again you know you could technically do that uh it's easily reversible though, right so another government comes in they said no we're bringing the sovereign back in and we're not going to interpret the letters patent like that anymore and we're going to have the sovereign start reappointing the governor general again uh and you also have to be mindful of the risks that you're running there. I mean, as we saw with uh, Madame Payette, there may be situations where you do want a sovereign or who's there to, who could dismiss a governor general. So you can't rule that out either. Um, if you're going to go further, though, right, if you're if you're actually going to demand or or propose that we come f- become an actual full fledged republic, not simply in an informal sense, but in a formal sense, then you do need to have a much serious, a much bigger discussion about what is your concept of the state? How are you going to conceive of power? How are you going to conceive of sovereignty? Um, what powers do you want to give to certain office holders? Because you could, again, go uh, an easy route and simply say everything best today in terms of the prerogatives of the crown that are exercised on the advice of the prime minister are unchanged. We don't do anything with them. But um, as we've seen in, in recent years, some of those prerogatives have generated quite a bit of controversy. So you may have, as part of this package of proposals, we want to also reform the crown such that it either is more independent of the prime minister and it exercises more discretion. That would be interesting, but controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may have a discussion of who gets to select the head of state function or who who gets to determine the the appointment process for that role. Mm-hmm. Do you just leave it with the prime minister? Do you say, no, you know, uh, we would prefer that this office be 
appointed or on the nomination or recommendation of another body or do we want to transfer that power entirely to the house of commons right there's the minute you start going down this path uh a number of people may want to propose different things because they want to change the institutions uh, or they feel that it's necessary to bring about something more significant uh, and it's in that context that any republican movement had better have some good answers <laughs> they better be able to say look okay here's here's the package that we're proposing we can tinker around the margins but overall can we just get agreement on this basic set of things mm -hmm. uh, but i think that even achieving consensus there is going to be incredibly difficult. Definitely. And, and I want to, in a moment, bring this back to, you mentioned the honor of the crown, and I want to talk about uh, the role of First Nations and Indigenous peoples in this conversation, because it's an important one. But just uh, on that kind of topic about working through the different, um, you know, hypothetically, what, what uh, a Canadian Republic uh, could, could look like, do you think there's a certain degree of inevitability that if, if that's the direction that Canada ended up going, that it would look a lot more like American republicanism, given our geographic proximity, given the, the cultural uh, confluence, really more influence of, of American culture on Canadian culture. And, and given that, you know, in, in some ways, so much of Canadian constitutional history has been resisting um, the american model if we were to give up the crown would, would it really just be inevitable that that's the path that we would uh go down well i i think the point you raise is is a significant one because uh turning back again to what ideas we have in terms of what we can propose it's not by accident as you say that a number of the democratic reform proposals that have been floated around um, I would say since around the time of the Reform Party, right, when that first gelled in the late 80s, it's not by accident that those tend to reflect American practices, term limits, um, referenda, um, the way that you select leaders. Uh, a lot of these things tend to reflect uh, a vision that, that emphasizes a more dare we say, American understanding of, of how best to exercise the democratic function. So that would weigh heavily on our thinking. I think you're right that um, it's difficult for us to avoid that simply because it's so present and as importantly, um, it is so pervasive in the way that we talk about our institutions. So every election, for instance, you know, there's a number of us that get all hot and bothered about the fact that people talk about prime minister elect and yes. term, you know, this is, is this Justin Trudeau's third term as prime minister, as if that, that term, as if that, that word means anything in a Canadian yeah. context, right? Like, and what, or that they have a mandate or whatever you want to call or, it. Or Polly saying I'm running for prime minister. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's all this language that is so infused with American thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, that you're right. It's and, and it's in many cases, it's not even uh, intentional, right? It's just part of the ether. It's just part of the, the air that we breathe. Um, now, it many of the reform proposals, I think some of them may try and say, look, we we don't want to go down the American route, right? We don't want to become a presidential republic. Um, we want to stay a parliamentary republic, maybe with a president like the Irish constitution or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. 
but we don't want to become, you know, a full-on congressional or presidential republic like the United States or France or, or countries like that. I don't think we would do that. But mm-hmm. to your point, um, we would be influenced, I think, by uh, American practice, and it probably would weigh heavily on the, the types of reimaginings of the, of the constitutional framework that, that we would have. Again, term limits, referenda, whatever you, you want to call it, there, there, there would be certain ideas, I think, that would reflect or be somewhat difficult to accommodate in the current arrangement. On that point, I, I want to just take a quick little, you know, sidebar um, from that, because so much of historically um, Canadian conservatism, when we, again, when we think about Canadian institutions as kind of preserving their Britishness, and so in that way being very distinctly non-American, historically, certainly in Toryism, uh, conservatism in Canada um, was, was very much tied to that. So on that point, when we think about republicanism in Canada and we think about this idea of conservatism, however you want to define that, whether it's an ideology, whether it's a disposition and, and you know, so we're using the term very broadly here, but are, are they irreconcilable ideas? Is it possible to identify, at least in the Canadian context, as a Republican and as a conservative at the same time? Uh, absolutely. I, I don't think the, the two are, are incompatible at all. Uh, Toryism, red Toryism, loyalism. It, I think loyalism is the best term, mm. to be honest, because that's mm-hmm. what, what we're really talking about, right? Those who left the American colonies and moved up to Canada during the independence of the United States, during the Revolutionary War. And that strain of thinking has been very strong, uh, or was very strong, I should say, in Canadian conservative thought, probably up until the 1980s, mm-hmm. right? I think it's fair to say. Um, but since that time, it, uh, as in many other Anglo-American democracies and many other democracies writ large, conservatism has under, undergone a bit of a shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it would be difficult to identify that kind of loyalist tradition in Canada today. It's still there, but it's been diluted in, in this far greater um, conservative movement that has, you know, many other facets today. So for instance, there's a, a definite kind of classical liberal tradition, some would, you know, disparagingly call it neoliberal, uh, that really came out of, of the 19, late 1970s, late time, 1980s, that emphasizes the private sector, individual rights, um, really market solutions. And that's that that's not really all that compatible with loyalism and rhetorism, <laughs> right? It, it, it's not really, the two were never really going to go well together. And you, you see that tension even still today within the, the heart of the conservative party and movement in Canada. And by the same token, there's a whole other movement now that's become even more resurgent recently, but going back to what we were talking about with reform of a populist conservative tradition which is now gaining a significant amount of strength, not only in the United States, but elsewhere. And I think it's fair to say there that that strand of conservatism, the populist one, mm-hmm. uh, has a difficult time conceptually with the monarchical mm. tradition. Why do I say that? Because within that, that populist idea is the notion that the people, however defined, mm-hmm. should govern. And that's not compatible with crown sovereignty, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, 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 they make for very strange bedfellows. 
and which is why a lot of the democratic reform ideas proposed by that strain of conservative thought in Canada have gone, have butted heads or, or run counter to crown powers, crown sovereignty, uh, and many of these other things. I mean, we can, from military deployments to uh, how the prime minister is selected to confidence, you name it, mm-hmm. right? That strand of thinking in the reform proposals that it puts forward uh, ha- do, do not align well with um, with monarchical, monarchical government in a constitutional sense. And that's really going to the heart of my, my, my previous question there about, you know, would, would the pull of a Canadian republicanism be towards, um, you know, kind of an American style congressional uh, republic? And I think what you're getting at here is that you can certainly see, you know, this this sort of thing like, you know, George Grant was looking towards, of course, and, uh, you know, this this um, the, the influence of, of American conservative thought on, on Canadian conservative thought. And then certainly you raise a good point there that. You know, we're getting to the point where the influence is, is such that, you know, it's almost hard to make these old distinctions uh, that, that used to be there because there's been this sort of, uh, you know, confluence of all of these ideas together. But I do want to talk about, as I said, um, the role of the honor of the crown as it pertains to First Nations and Indigenous peoples when we're talking about the state of the monarchy in Canada. And this was a perennial, it's always a perennial topic of discussion, but certainly when uh, Her late Majesty Queen Elizabeth passed away, and in the lead up to the coronation of King Charles, this was something that Canadian pundits were talking a fair bit uh, about, and that was the Crown's unique relationship with Indigenous peoples. And so, given the importance of the honour of the Crown in our conception, broadly speaking, of, of Indigenous rights in Canada, do you think there's a risk that in Canada we're approaching this very nuanced question very superficially. Do you think we are uh, approaching this question about how Indigenous peoples relate to the Crown as if uh, as if Indigenous peoples were a homogenous group? Like, h- how do we approach that in a respectful uh, and an accurate way that may recognize a diversity of opinion uh, regarding the role of the Crown within First Nations and Indigenous people groups? So I'll, I'll answer that question by, by in a sense, um, going against what I'm about to say. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I would simply point out uh, as a caveat that take anything that a non-Indigenous person says about Crown Indigenous relations with an enormous grain of salt and take an even bigger grain of salt if the person talking about the importance of the Crown to Indigenous peoples happens to be a non-Indigenous monarchist. Right. Just, you know... <laughs> They don't. <laughs> suffice to say, they don't necessarily speak for all indigenous people, mm-hmm. and nor do they speak for any indigenous people in a sense. I mean, like mm-hmm. they may have, they may be allies of indigenous peoples that have mm-hmm. that perspective, but do not mistake that. So I'm now going to wade into this as again a non-indigenous person speaking about uh, crown indigenous relations. My point would be simply, if anything, this is precisely the type of conversation where non-Indigenous monarchists and non-Indigenous Republicans need to take a step back Mm -hmm. and be quiet (laughs) and allow Indigenous peoples to tell us what they think of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I see just far too many non-Indigenous people weighing in on this as if they have an authoritative voice. Now, this isn't to say that we don't have any Indigenous perspectives. We do have Perry Bellegarde, 
who you know is very vocal in his support of the crown, uh, who spoke at the Chapel Royal the day after the coronation with the king uh, being present. We do have the king who met with a number of indigenous leaders prior to the coronation. So there is clearly uh, a relationship that exists. And of course, our governor general, Mary Simon, is an indigenous person, yes. That exists between indigenous peoples and the crown. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I strongly suspect that there are other perspectives out there Mm -hmm. and other concern and other considerations. And equally, perhaps as importantly, getting back to something we, we were mentioning earlier about replacing the crown, I think we need a better discussion. And I would like, I personally would like to hear far more nuance and interesting voices from the indigenous community about how exactly they understand their relationship with the crown using concepts that we would use. Mm-hmm. So is it, an, what is meant by treaty um, if we apply it using uh, the, the, the quote-unquote settler constitutional framework. Mm-hmm. Is it sovereign to sovereign? Is it nation to nation? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. How do you understand it as an Indigenous community? Because it's very easy for non-Indigenous Canadians to bring a whole bunch of assumptions into that and to therefore almost um, repeat the errors of the past, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, you are going to get into the honor of the crown and you, we have case law about this and what it's supposed to mean, but even more importantly, I think it would be important to, to, to really emphasize that if you're going to speak about crown indigenous relations, indigenous voices and a, a diverse set of indigenous voices have to be the ones that are leading that conversation. Mm-hmm. That's good. So I want to pose a bit of a thought experiment to you and, and make it clear that this isn't something that I, you know, as I said earlier, I'm probably a bit more of a unabashed constitutional uh, monarchist if, if you're in kind of the not broken, don't fix it category. But I want to do this thought experiment about um, what would happen if, uh, if the monarchy, if the crown were to be abolished in, in the United Kingdom. Because you note in your piece in the line that one of the things that constitutional killjoys, and I would count myself as one of those killjoys, will point out to Republicans is that removing the monarchy in Canada is is a virtual impossibility at, at this point in our history, given that it would require the unanimous consent of parliaments and the provinces to amend that part of our constitution. But I want to flip that and I want to ask what it would take constitutionally speaking short of a sort of Cromwellian revolution to abolish the monarchy in the United Kingdom? Is this this something that's even feasible right now? And if that were to happen, hypothetically, if the crown, if the monarchy were to be abolished in the United Kingdom, what would then happen legally, politically speaking in Canada? Right. So let's start with the United Kingdom. Uh, And you mentioned the revolutionary settlement of the 17th century in in England. And I think it's important to recognize that that provides the clear benchmark in the English-British constitutional context that it can be done, it has been done. Similarly, uh, going back to Ireland again, we know that you can do this in a unitary state. And the challenge of doing it in a unitary state is far less complex than doing it in a federation. 
uh, and it's far less complex than doing it um, in, in a country that that has an indigenous population mm-hmm. that has a clear relationship with the crown. So in the United Kingdom context, uh, I, I suspect it would be difficult in terms of devolution. And are we talking about um, abandoning the monarchy after, let's say, the unification of Ireland or Scottish independence? I mean, context matters a lot here. Mm-hmm. But all this to say that in an English context, it would not be all that difficult. It would require you know, an act of parliament and it would require a lot of tinkering in terms of how you want the state to be conceived and many other concerns. But it has been done before. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly not constitutionally impossible. Mm-hmm. Now, what would that look like in Canada? And here is where we get some very interesting mental gymnastics that we would need to go through. So based on um, the federal government's interpretation of the law of succession and the courts that have backed them on this, we know who our monarch is based on who the British monarch is. Mm-hmm. What happens if there's no British monarch? Mm-hmm. So we can come up with a few answers. The first answer would be, well, we'll just keep as the monarch, whoever was the monarch in the United Kingdom before, even though there's no law anymore that sustains that. And Mm -hmm. that position has been abolished in the United Kingdom. That would create one of two problems. One, you could never change it, even through an act of the British Parliament. Uh, and number two, this assumes that the, the people who you've identified as your monarch want to be your monarch, <laughs> right? Or, I mean, you, 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 in a sense, you can't enlist somebody to do this role if they don't want to do it, right? Mm-hmm. It would be very awkward to kind of demand that members of the House of Windsor, uh, who are no longer the House of Windsor, right. uh, somehow are the, the kings and queens of Canada, even though they don't live here, we don't provide them anything. I mean, it would be, you know, there, there's the incredulity, number one. Number two, we were, we have the option of simply saying the the office of the queen in the constitution is vacant. It's just, there's nobody occupying the office. Luckily, we have the letters patent 1947 again, that says that the governor general can exercise all the powers of the sovereign. Mm-hmm. So we would simply keep the office of the queen vacant and we would have the governor general doing everything. The so, so it would be a true virtual monarchy. It would be, you know, basically what we have now, just like one level of abstraction higher where you, you, the crown would be fully an idea in a sense, Mm -hmm. and it would be personified by the, by the queen's representative, the queen's representative as the governor general. Now, you know, some, some people as have noted many years ago on Twitter, you could basically replace in this construct, you can replace the sovereign with a stuffed, a stuffed beaver, right? And it would basically fulfill the role, like in a true Canadian fashion. We could simply, you know, create this thing and call it sovereign with the governor general exercising all the powers. Mm-hmm. This would create some problems. Picking uh, yeah. Section 20 of the Constitution Act 1867, which seems to imply that both the sovereign and the governor general need to sign off on additional senators. Mm-hmm. And it would create the problem of, again, who appoints and dismisses the governor general, right? Mm-hmm. But you could technically... Uh, argue that, well, we have no more, we don't have anybody occupying the office of the sovereign anymore, but we're just going to get around this by interpreting the letter of patent 1947 in such a way that the governor general can do it all. And we will eventually, you know, get around to fixing this at some point. A true Canadian fashion will just punt it. Right. right. Uh, the third option is 
one that I think uh, the federal government somewhat hinted at uh, during the debate over the succession laws and is keeping in its back pocket, which would be that you could use Section 44 of the amending formula to identify a new monarch with Parliament doing that alone. And the argument would be um, effectively we are... We're, we're simply retaining the status quo. Therefore, we wouldn't need to consult the provinces because if we simply went to the person who'd normally be monarch and, and asked them nicely, can you just do this for us? And we'll provide you, you know, some annual money to have a secretary and, and other office supplies in order for you to sign off on Canadian things. Can you mm -hmm. just help us out of a bind here? Right. That's the other possibility. But if that's true, Right. If you can use Section 44 to to identify the monarch for Canada in that situation, then perhaps you could do it today, which is, again, interesting. Does that mean the federal government would, under that interpretation, have the power to identify a different person today using Section 44? It's I mean, it's not with, outside of the realm of possibility. Uh, but there again, the, the challenge would be you would almost need the permission of this person who's kind of just no longer uh, sovereign of the United Kingdom. You would need them to, to play along. Uh, and the final one would be that you would need to do something with Section 41 Amendment, uh, and you'd have to get all the provinces on board. And I think this is where um, I find that to be the least likely scenario, mm -hmm. simply because uh, the federal government would do everything in its power to avoid that conversation. Uh, and I suspect, based on how the courts handled the succession case, that the courts would also uh, very quickly align themselves with the federal interpretation in order to avoid you know, a, a real constitutional problem. Now, all that said, I think there's strong sentiment uh, within the federal government that this will never happen because the United Kingdom um, would never leave Canada in a lurch. Right. Right. That that. Even if they had this type of debate, uh, they would say, look, we need to do something to account for Canada because we, we don't want uh, to put Canada in this position. And there'd be some pretty intense diplomatic negotiations around this. And that might save the monarchy, as it were, mm -hmm. in a British context. But I think that's a, it's a bit of a gamble, right, mm -hmm. um, to assume that the United Kingdom would do something or not do something uh, that its population, let's say, demanded because it doesn't want to make life complicated for Canada. As we saw with Brexit, uh, <laughs> the United Kingdom sometimes is willing to do things that may upset other countries. Right. And, you know, I wouldn't just count on the United Kingdom being nice towards Canada uh, if, if that's really where uh, the thinking of the public was in the UK. And of course, this is all, you know, hypothetical, unlikely, um, pretty quite unlikely to happen as things currently stand with opinion polling in the United Kingdom, certainly showing that support for the monarchy, relatively speaking, remains quite strong, even if it's not as strong as it was at, at the height of uh, Her Late Majesty's rule. Um, and, you know, in the Canadian context, I, I suppose this comes back to kind of when you talk about republicanism in Canada being a bit of a, a vague aspiration. Uh, it seems safe to say that even if Canadians are, most Canadians are not full-throated supporters of the constitutional monarchy, they're more ambivalent about it. And, and that largely stems from the fact that uh, the sovereign themselves uh, does not play a very active role in the day-to-day -day lives of Canadians. I mean, 
even amongst, you know, outside of my uh, sort of nerdy friend group, amongst my, my normal friends, if you were, I was one of the few people I know to have gotten up and actually uh, watched the coronation with a few exceptions, whereas most of my other friends either weren't aware that it was happening uh, or, or, or didn't care. So, so on that, I kind of want to bring it back to the sovereign and bring it back to uh, bring it back to the man, bring it back to King Charles. And to round off this conversation, what do you think for for Charles in particular, and given his history, given that he is a figure that many uh, Canadians are are well acquainted with at this point, what do you think a successful Canadian reign looks like for Charles the Third? Um, a successful Canadian reign is one in which he comes to Canada when invited by the federal government, largely avoids creating conflict or crisis within the United Kingdom, which I think he's shown that he's gotten that message very clearly and is not going to be um, the type of more outspoken monarch that some people feared he might be. I think he's largely going to align with his mother's practice, it may be a bit of change on the margins. Uh, where it will get interesting in a Canadian context, though, is the extent to which he chooses or uh, encourages uh, efforts to involve the crown or the, the monarch, I should say, more directly in Indigenous reconciliation. Hmm. Uh, I think there is an expectation or at least a hope by some um, in, in Canada, that the Crown will take a far more active and visible role in the reconciliation process, not dissimilar from how the Pope uh, did uh, recently. Now, this raises uh, a series of conceptual issues, not the least of which is if we accept that the Crown can do no wrong, can the monarch apologize for a wrong? And as we saw with the Pope, uh, you can craft some clever language right to apologize and take responsibility without uh declaring your culpability right so there's there's ways around this um and if if the king wants to make a mark in canada today in the Cana contemporary canadian polity and the the issues of the day that are the, the most central when it comes to the monarchy that is reconciliation um, how he chooses to tackle it, uh, will be, I think the, the more, the defining feature of his reign in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, because when it comes to some, to other issues such as, will he say anything as other realms become republics? So Jamaica, perhaps even Australia and others may choose to become republics. The, the reality is that the the British position and I would and the royal family's position seems to be not only is it their decision, but they certainly are not going to be opposed to it. It would make mm -hmm. their life much simpler. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, and as we discussed, you know, the royal family has already kind of sent that message very clearly when it comes to where its priorities lie. Its priorities lie in maintaining its position in the United Kingdom. So the less that you have to accommodate. Um, all the, the realms and the time demands and all that, the better. So just as, again, a parenthesis here, uh, if you're Charles and you're trying to have a slimmed down monarchy, then having fewer commitments and fewer demands on the royal family in the realms 
is, is also a good thing, right? But when it comes to um, overall, right, uh, how would the king or what, what would be the defining feature, I think, of, the, of King Charles III's reign in, in a Canadian context is how he manages, how the palace negotiates, um, calls for the crown to be more directly involved in some way, shape or form in Indigenous reconciliation. Well, thanks so much for that, Phil, and for just a really, you know, fascinating conversation. We're on the cusp of uh, a new era of the of the crown uh, in Canada, and so we appreciate you coming on the podcast to kind of mark the start of that with us. And no doubt there will be opportunities in the future as this goes on to have you back and and, and at some of our uh, events on the road as we continue to kind of think about uh, these themes, which are likely going to continue to percolate and perhaps be a little bit more. Um, more prominent than they were uh, during the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. But thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we look forward to having you back again soon. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media for updates on our summer CPD series and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.